Welcome to the Pivotcast. This episode was recorded on October 4th, 2017 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Leanne Dunick, Catherine Hernandez, Grace O'Connell, and Denise Smith. Just so you know, this episode contains some strong language and sexual content. Listener's discretion is advised. Welcome to Pivot. Those of us here for the first time, the regulars, the semi-regulars, we are delighted to have you here. So I am, uh, no man, (laughs) we're we're going to do a thing like this. See, we've never done this before. This is the first. (laughs) Uh, I'm your host, Kinesia, and this is? Uh, Michelle, also host. Host number two. So we have uh, tonight, coming in all the way from Vancouver, Leanne, how do you say your last name? Dunick. Dunick. However I want to, wow. Leanne Dunick. (laughs) (laughs) To Love the Coming End, brilliant title. And a companion album. Companion album. Of the world, wow, mm-hmm. amazing. Scarborough, which has been tearing it up all year long, <laughs> Catherine Hernandez. Grace O'Connell, be ready for the lightning. Yeah. And so obviously, right here in the GTA, and then coming in all the way from deep in the heart of the U.S., we have Denise Smith. Don't call us dead. Shortlisted today for National Book Awards. Congratulations. We are beyond, beyond honored to have all of you here tonight. Um, and we're going to kick things off. First up, we have Catherine Hernandez, who's a theater practitioner and award-winning author. She is the author of M is for Moustache, a Pride ABC book from Flamingo Rampant, and the novel Scarborough, Arsenal Pulp Press, which won the 2015 ACWW Emerging Writers Award for Fiction for the Unpublished Manuscript. She is the artistic director of Be Current Performing Arts. Welcome Catherine Hernandez to the stage. I never get nervous for readings, but I get so nervous when people read your bio. <laughs> it's like, there's this weird face you have to make while they're reading about your accolades. <laughs> it feels so strange. Uh, so here we are. Thank you so much for inviting me, people of Pivot. I really um, admire this industry. I'm just getting to know everybody now uh, coming from theater, and it has been such an honor to get to know everyone. So, um, yes, Scarborough. It is, uh, in a nutshell, it's about uh, the impact of a literacy center on a low-income community um, with focusing on three children over the course of a school year. Is anybody here from Scarborough? Thank gosh. (laughs) Sometimes you read in some place and they're just like, I'm from East York. It's okay, it's okay, I get it. (laughs) But yeah, so uh, Scarborough, for people who don't know, is that this, it is um, the more lower income side of Toronto and the East End. 
and definitely there's pockets of gentrification. But uh, for me, as someone who's lived there since I was 10, and I'm now, I'm going to be turning 40 on November 2nd, right, right? Asian don't, Asian don't, raisin. Um, that, uh, <laughs> um, that uh, it, for me, it's one of the most, I don't know, I find it one of the most genuine parts of Toronto. Um, because there are no major monuments, but the mon there's like definitely the sense of pride about the space that's shared between us. So uh, this is from the point of view of Edna, who is a Filipina esthetician. And she talks about what her, it's like, uh, like what her days are like. I have long days. The day started with a 10 o'clock appointment with the cop. He always comes in on his days off. Good morning, Officer Tyndall, I said when he came in today, out of uniform. He nodded. He enjoys seeing me feel afraid of him. I decided a long time ago to never really look him in the eye. Instead, my eyes were on the foot baths I was filling with bleach and warm water to start the day. You ready for me? His face winced at the smell of bleach. This made me happy. I had scheduled a waxing, he had scheduled a waxing appointment. This was different from his usual manicure when, as I do with any client, I unbutton his shirt cuff to reveal his entire forearm. With my right hand, I pump lotion onto my fingers. Of course, the pump is only half full with dollar store grade lotion. Of course, the lotion splatters across my thighs. Of course, Officer Tyndall says, oh, is this getting personal, Edna? I do not respond. I begin massaging the sinew along his forearms toward the bend of his elbows and keep my eyes down to avoid seeing the creases of his lips upturned, smirking at me. My thumbs make their way to his palms, making circles along his lifeline. His smirk grows bigger. If you can do this with my hands, who knows what you can do elsewhere, he says. I do not respond. I never respond, and still, he always says it. Today, he had asked for a back wax and headed to the facial rooms. I close the door behind me. My girlfriend likes me smooth all over, you know? He started to remove his golf shirt, revealing a turtleneck of hair from the bottoms of his earlobes to above the crack of his bum. I shuddered. I had not even finished rolling out the paper on the surface of the waxing bed, and he had flopped his body face down like a child waiting for his bedtime story and for me to tuck him in. I snapped my latex gloves into place. I checked the consistency of the wax by dipping a tongue depressor in and out of the pot, like caramel. Hot caramel. I shook baby powder across his torso to make it look like Christmas. Then I began to apply the hot wax along the direction of the hair growth. He moaned since I refused to cool the liquid down one bit. If he were a different client, I would have blown on the wax before applying it, but I was enjoying his pain too much. Once he was covered from nape to crack, I began my torture. I chose the largest patches of linen strips I could find to begin the pulling process. From the small of his back, I pressed the linen into the wax and pulled the hair from the root like an ugly carpet in an ugly house that I wanted to demolish. <laughs> he began screaming with every pull, and with every pull, I thought of the times his knees made their way between my legs under the manicure table. Ouch! I thought of the times he leaned into me to smell my ear. Shit, God, that hurts! I thought of all the times he handed me my one dollar tip and winked at me. Jesus, please, it hurts! Stop! I did not. I did not stop until he was as hairless as a newborn mouse. I turned him over and I did it all over again on his chest. I noticed his eyes staring up. In the most sing-song, docile voice, I said, Oh, Officer Tindall, are you crying? He buried his face into his elbow. <laughs> no. 
Thank you. Every time I read this, I always say it sort of like a warning. Um, uh, that is a true story, but it's because I used to be an esthetician, uh, but it was with a fireman. Um, so don't, don't try and sexually harass me. <laughs> right, right. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, I don't. Uh, so, what Arsenal Paul Press is located in Vancouver, and they were already very familiar with Scarborough because of uh, David Cherryandi Sokuyan. And, and we all know that um, David Cherryandi with uh, Brother, which we all love, um, that uh, it, it also takes place in Scarborough. We actually, um, I actually found. Whoop, found out that our parents were actually living in the same townhome complex in Scarborough, which was really lovely. Uh, but they wanted me to, in my own words, describe, well, what, what is Scarborough like? And, I, uh, and they said, you know, and just remember that we're, we're from Vancouver, but I want you to be able to describe it because you're going to have to describe it every time when you're in different places um, uh, touring the book. And I said, well, it was hard to describe because I was like, well, we don't have the street cred of, like, the Bronx, but it's like, like that, but tacky. Like, we're just tacky. Um, <laughs> um, so the one, uh, one particular part of my book that I feel really uh, gathers that essence of, of tackiness uh, is uh, the dollar store part of my book. Uh, so this is from the point of view of Sylvie, uh, who is, uh, I guess, navigating the terrain of the homeless shelter system. And uh, because her uh, father is dealing with a lot of hospital visits, she's put into the care of uh, somebody by the name of Mr. George, uh, who has one of those tracheotomies, so he can't really speak. And he's bringing her to the dollar store to um, spend a dollar that she has. And um, just FYI, in, in Scarborough, dollar store is good times, OK? <laughs> we arrived at the dollar store, and its smell of plastic and packaged goods drove me wild with excitement. Right at the entrance, we pushed past a white lady wearing a muumuu and drinking a pop. Mr. George slowly guiding me up and down every aisle. Paper plates, clay pottery you can paint yourself, spray bottles. The possibilities were endless with this loony sitting in my sweaty palms. I explored the cosmetics aisle. Lipsticks that smelled like Play-Doh, shampoos that smelled like car wash, flower-printed sh um, shower caps, camel-printed do-rags. In the middle of the aisle was a super-secret section. I called it super secret because the ladies who went there always looked left and right to see if anyone was watching. I just rolled my eyes hard to the side so that Mr. George couldn't tell I was curious. Mama told me condoms are socks for boys' penises to keep them from getting girls pregnant. They didn't look like socks to me, though. They looked like Halloween candies and wrappers. Next to the condoms were boxes of pregnancy tests. It made sense to me. I imagined that if you bought dollar store quality condoms, you'd need dollar store quality pregnancy tests. Just as we were passing the nail polishes, the shelf shook, and bags of cotton pads rained down on my head. It was the white lady in the moon moon. She pushed some man wearing a UFC bandana and a leather jacket into the shelf again. Boxes with images of smiling black women in shower caps came tumbling down. The manager managed to throw him down and began pushing into his face with every word. I told you, she's gone. She's left. You can't do anything about it, asshole. Ugh. Get off me, you fat pig. Ugh. She held him down between her legs. He was clumsy, maybe drunk. His punches were weak. That's a nice massage you're giving me, face. Ugh. Mr. George, knowing a good Scarborough fight when he sees one, and knowing the possibility of either party carrying guns, casually turned on his heels and led me to the back of the store while the fight continued. 
He held my wrist and crouched down. He waved his hand in his old man way for me to do the same. So I did. We were like those soldiers you see in the war movies, hiding in the jungle, only we were hiding in the kids' toy section. Dartboards, rattles, pretend guitars, light up yo-yos. Over the PA system we heard, can the magic come to the front, please? The cashier was in hysterics. The police sirens were already blaring. The customers still lined up, waiting to make their purchases. Well, you can't ring me through, said a man with a basket of party favors and balloons. Not now, sir. The cashier seemed torn between the growing lineup and the police officers who were entering the premises. But it's my niece's birthday. We gotta get going. I don't give a rat about this fist fight. This is the most pitiful fight I've ever seen. The rest of the lineup began to chime in. Oh, come on. Well, if you have cash, can we just leave it at the counter? The police are here now. Just ring us through. From the back of the store, the manager emerged in a cloud of marijuana smoke from his hot-boxed office, his eyes half-closed. Okay, everyone, let's stay calm. Nobody panic, he said, trying desperately to look sober. Everyone, everyone's like, wow, she did that really well. Um, everyone stopped to look at the manager baked as hell, his man bun high atop his head. By the time the Moo Moo Lady and Bandana Man were handcuffed and escorted out, I decided on a light-up yo-yo for my purchase. Mr. George and I calmly waited in line like everyone else, as if nothing had happened. Just another day in Scarborough. As a lady in front of us said, with one hand pushing her cart full of crayons and do-it-yourself birdhouses while the other patted her hair weaved, drama. Thank you. <laughs> um, and that is also based on a true story. Uh, we, yeah, we got, it was, a, it was an awesome fight. Like, so sad. Like, just like the worst. It was like U the worst UFC <laughs> it was, and the woman was wearing a moo moo. Um, okay. So a lot of the one character that everyone seems to love from this book is Bing. And as a queer brown woman, I wanted to author into being a possibility, um, almost like a, a prayer, of a fat femme Filipino young boy who is queer and who is loved by his mother. So he talks about how after a year of bullying at school, he decides to, because he's going to be leaving for the gifted program, he's going to gay it up for the spring concert. All the homos are like, I remember that moment. <laughs> Is this too much, Ma? I asked, holding up the Whitney Houston cassette tape. I think everyone will make fun of me. You will never be too much. You will never be too little, Bernard. You be you. My heart fluttered hearing her say that. Really? I sat cross-legged amongst the other cassette tapes, all possible song choices for the school talent show. None of the songs were newer than 1995. They were all mom's tapes from her days growing up in Cavite back in the Philippines. Oh, what about Michael Jackson? Everybody does Michael Jackson. Ma continued sewing pink sequins on my halter top. She positioned her ivory bracelets higher on her forearm so they wouldn't clink. Frank Sinatra, you are performing for children, not the old folks home, we giggled. And uh, why not Whitney Houston? Why are you doubting yourself? Well, because Whitney Houston is a girl. So? Uh, people will say that I shouldn't sing it because I'm a boy. Ma held my face. You're so much more than a boy, Bing. My eyes welled up. I thought for a second I would tell her about the kiss Hakeem and I shared, but I didn't want to ruin the moment. Tell me, what in your own words is this song about? 
she uh, really wants to dance, and she hopes the person she likes will dance with her. <laughs> Have you ever wanted to dance with somebody? My face grew hot. She poked my soft tummy. Ha! Have you? I smiled shyly and folded my hand over her fingers. It tickled. <laughs> yes, ma. Okay, see? Then does it matter if you're a boy or a girl? No, ma. I held up the cassette tape. But how will we play this? Our tape deck isn't loud enough. I pointed to our outdated boombox with intermittently dysfunctional speakers. Just relax, huh? I will figure things out. She used her teeth to cut the fuchsia thread and held the halter top against my torso. Looking good. Okay, try it on and we can test the tuxedo. The night of the performance, Mom massaged my earlobes like she always did when I was nervous, but something was different. Where are your bracelets? What bracelets? I looked at the new karaoke machine at her feet. I looked at her empty wrists. Where did this come from? Listen, huh? you need to relax. Tita May is out there. The whole gang is out there. Just have fun. We'll be cheering for you. Between knowing my mother sold her bracelets for me and the possibility I'd be beaten up for being a girl, I wondered if I'd made a mistake. Maybe Ma could still trade out the Whitney Houston cassette for the Frank Sinatra one. Maybe I could improvise my choreography. Maybe the audience would sing loudly enough that they wouldn't notice that I didn't know the lyrics. But then the curtain slid open. I could feel the heat of the lights on my scalp. I switched the microphone on. Showtime. The music started. With my back still to the audience, I did chest isolations to the beat of a syncopated rhythm. It was like my ribs broke through something, something like a wall, something like the crash of waves. My right hip joined in on the isolations up and down with the sound of the synth. And just as I began singing into the microphone, I expanded my chest and pivoted around to face the audience. There was no turning back now. Sweat dribbled down the end of my nose. I could hear from the speakers the sound of my feminine voice. My truth. I could see confusion. The audience was wondering if I was lip-syncing or singing, but the fancy trills confirmed everything. This was all me. Max, naman! I heard Ma scream from the audience. I pumped my lotion, uh, my, my pump lotion, I was just thinking about Edna. I pumped my shoulders left and right. I pointed at stunned audience members. Ma had instructed me to walk along the lip of the stage with my hand extended to give high fives to my adoring fans. <laughs> but there were none. Just bewildered school band members. My voice cracked slightly at the thought of possible failure. Then the familiar chorus started. I gestured for everyone to clap along. They did. In waves, the adults got up from their seats and clapped too. I grabbed the lapels of my tuxedo jacket, held my breath, and tugged hard. I threw it into the audience at Hakeem, who twirled it like a prize he'd won. Everyone was standing and clapping on their feet. It was time to take things down a notch for the bridge. I dropped to both my knees singing into the microphone as I wanted to sing into Hakeem's ear. I sang of searching for a dance partner, somebody to hold me, somebody who loves me. The audience leaned in, wondering what was to happen next. Just as the chorus began again, I jumped to my feet, ripped off my button-up shirt, and revealed my pink sequin halter top. Everyone cheered. Under the auditorium lights, I felt the sweat from my bare arms both cooling and accumulating, riding the wave of a sustained note. I felt my insides shine like a light beaming from my throat and through every finger. Truth. Truth. It felt like confetti. It felt like running. It felt like screaming, me. Truth. Truth. I ended with my fist in the air, my eyes closed. I could hear everyone on their feet cheering for me. I could also hear my own breathing, deep, like I was touching something way up high. The lights shone on my face. It felt so good to be me.
Thank you, everyone. I'm so pleased to introduce our next author, Grace O'Connell. Grace is the author of Magnified World, which was a national bestseller. And her new novel, Be Ready for the Lightning, was published by Random House uh, in early June 2017. She writes a books column for this magazine. Yay! And her work has appeared in various publications and anthologies, including The Walrus, The Globe and Mail, Tattle Creek, CBC, The Journey Prize Stories, as well as various lifestyle and literary publications across Canada. Grace has been nominated for National Magazine Awards and the amazing RBC Bronwyn Wallace Award for her fiction. And she was the recipient of the 2014 Canadian Authors Association Emerging Writer Award. Grace lives here in Toronto, where she teaches creative writing at the University of Toronto and works as the senior editor for Open Book. Please give a warm pivot welcome to Grace. Well, I've... Uh I've broken the cardinal writer rule, which is never read directly after the award-winning theater artist. Uh, so I'll just, I'll just lie down and die on the stage. But um, I, uh, I wanted to thank you all so much for coming. Um, thank you so much to Ms. Michelle and Kinesia for um, not just inviting me to read, but for everything you do running Pivot. I know it's a huge labor of love. Um, and yeah, so I'm going to read from Be Ready from, for the Lightning. Uh, I do know the title of my own book, I swear. I really did write it. Um, this is basically the story of Veda, uh, a woman who grows up in Vancouver, and her brother Conrad, and they have a very complicated relationship. Conrad is very prone to violence, and that's something um, that becomes an issue for them as they, as they grow up. Um, apart from that, they have a very loving relationship, but it becomes, uh, Veda sort of becomes um, something of a, a protector for him, and she takes care of him, uh, and it becomes problematic, and eventually she leaves for New York City to try to make a fresh start. But upon arriving in New York, or not too long after she arrives in New York, she uh, is on a city bus which is hijacked by a gunman. So it's really out of the frying pan into the fire situation. So I'm going to read a section that takes place in Vancouver before Veda leaves uh, that gives you a little bit of her relationship with her brother. And then I'm also going to read a little bit from the bus, because if you have a hijacking on a bus, you do need to read a little bit of that, or it's kind of false advertising. So this happens in Vancouver when uh, Veda and Conrad are still in middle school, and uh, Veda is attacked at school. Um, I'm not going to read that scene because I, it could be difficult for some people, but this is the aftermath of what happened. And uh, I should clarify, Veda doesn't tell anyone what happened. Lunch hour came, and Conrad found me, having heard about the blood on my arm. Let me see, he said. You fell? I said, I fell. And Conrad, 14 years old, looked at the arm and the torn t-shirt and saw what the teacher and the other students hadn't, that I hadn't fallen, that unlike him, I was a liar. Though he couldn't get a story out of me, he finally got a name, a now forgotten name, and he went to that 12-year-old boy and beat the living shit out of him. He refused to say why he'd done it, and because there had been other, smaller fights before, hallway scuffles and playground shoving matches, detentions and suspensions, he would be expelled, sent to a school where there would be many more, worse fights. After that first incident, I tended to him with Tylenol and cold compresses and Epsom salts and ginger ale and many other things that worked not much in the short run and not at all in the long run. I could tell them what happened, I said, sitting on the edge of his bed with its requisite blue plaid boy comforter. The idea of it, the telling, made my joints feel like hot, heavy metal. I couldn't stand the thought of having to say it out loud. I didn't even know what I would say. But Conrad being expelled was so huge, it blocked out the sun. It was unthinkable. 
They couldn't expel you if they knew that you were trying to help me. Don't, he said. Don't say anything. But you can't let them. I was going to screw it up at some point, he said. He put his hand on top of mine on the cold cloth I'd put on his forehead where a bruise was forming and pressed down into his own sore head. At least this way there's a point to it, he said. Promise me you won't say anything. I could hardly look at him. I felt like I'd stolen something from him, that I was in his debt in a way I'd never be able to pay back, even though I hadn't told him to do anything, hadn't even wanted it. But I was relieved to be let off the hook, to not have to talk, to let it slide into the past and wipe it away. I looked at his hand on top of mine and thought, I am a coward. Okay, I said, I promise. Our parents murmured to each other at night when they thought I was asleep about how tender-hearted I was, how lucky they were that their second child was so mild and kind. I heard them when I walked sock-footed to the kitchen to put away the things I used to look after Conrad. The first few times my mother protested, said she wanted to do it herself, but Conrad said, it's okay, Mom, Veda can do it. And after a while, she stopped asking. After that, it was easy for Conrad and me to get into routine to hide the worst of his cuts and bruises from them. We'd head to the basement and in the grim glow of the fluorescent tube ceiling lights, like sunlight on a dead planet. I'd unearth the bag of supplies we kept under the old floral couch. It was an odd tradition, but it was ours, and even when he was wincing under the iodine, there was an impishness to Conrad, to his enjoyment of the trick we were pulling off. He kept my spirits up about his own pain, and if I let it slip and he saw my lip tremble, he'd pinch it and smile, saying, I saw that. We were close then, closer than Annie and Al or my other friends at school and their brothers, and I thought what a good brother and sister we were. I was vain about it. Conrad was a boy, he was older, he was handsome, he looked like our mother and I didn't. He was removed from me in so many ways, but all that was erased as I wielded those band-aids and cold washcloths. Is it strange to say I was never more sure of being loved than I was just then? I knew what Conrad did. I knew there might be another sister or mother or father somewhere else at that same moment patching up another boy or man because of Conrad. When I tended him, though, the universe shrank to just the two of us, a small room where I was both useful and safe. But if in those moments Conrad went upstairs to get a drink or use the bathroom and left me alone down there, the, the basement became cold again, a dour, half-renovated space full of rejected furniture, and I became a girl with blood under her fingernails and hands that stank of disinfectant. So I'm going to read a, a section that takes place on the bus in New York. I've never been shot. I've never even seen a gun up close other than my father's hunting rifles up at the cabin. And those 22s with their wooden stocks are more like something from Davy Crockett than Quentin Tarantino. He took Conrad into the woods to shoot sometimes. My dad, not Quentin Tarantino. Muffled booms from deep in the trees. It was just pop cans off stumps and once on a whim, the slowest, dumbest rabbit. Tears from Connie afterwards. They didn't invite me into the woods to shoot. It wasn't because I'm a girl, just an assumption I wouldn't have wanted to go. They were right. I wouldn't have. I get on the city bus that day in April after running three blocks down Fifth Avenue along the side of Central Park. I've been in New York a couple of months already, but there's still a part of me, a dorky tourist part, that can only think, I'm running down Fifth Avenue. I'm running beside Central Park as I go. A numbstall commentary of the obvious. I'm wearing my shoes that got ruined in the rain. They're half slipping off my feet, but the bus is almost at the stop, so I run past souvenir stands and lemonade carts and a pile of seemingly discarded blue wooden slats telling me sternly, 
police line do not cross. It's unseasonably hot in Manhattan and I'm sweating in, in my pits down my back and a little where my bra meets my skin. That's writing from life. <laughs> On the bus, there isn't an open seat except where I would have had to really squeeze in beside someone, which I don't like, so I just stand. I hang from the clammy pull-down handle, swinging and swaying around. I bump into a mustached man beside me and apologize. He says, don't worry, dear. And my homesick heart gives a little jump because that's something my dad would say, the dear. I can almost hear him saying it, the faded Irish lilt buttering the edges of his voice. When I'm away from them, I miss a version of my parents that doesn't really exist, a sort of cuddly, perfect family nostalgia. Maybe I'm not the only one. Maybe this is why people leave, move on, put distance between themselves and where they're from so they can miss a Vaseline lens version of things. Central Park goes on forever. Just before we pass by the Met and its grand entrance, a crowd of kids gets on the bus with a woman hurting them, probably a teacher. There's a playground peeking out from above the stone wall of the park. I don't know why. I don't get sappy about kids usually, but it makes me smile. After the kids go, there's room enough to sit, but I don't bother. Neither does the mustache man. I feel attached to him as if we're friends. I do this with strangers all the time. I do it with cars that I drive behind on the highway for a long time. I get sad when they exit. A tall guy, one of those slab of meat Russian types, gets on the bus and sits down in one of those spaces vacated by the children. He's talking loudly into a cell phone. Yeah, I'm on the M1 now. I'll be there when I'm there. It's good. Doesn't matter anyway. She wouldn't even let me pick him up. Like, picking him up is something so big. Too big for me, apparently. It's some bullshit. But what am I supposed to do? I got my mom to do it. Apparently that was okay. Even she wouldn't say no to my mom. A professorial-looking man across the aisle makes a shh sound and says quietly, could you keep your voice down? You're disturbing everyone. Without even moving the phone away from his mouth, the first man says even louder, don't tell me to shh. I ain't disturbing anyone but you. The two of them glare at each other for a second and I get tense all over. I hate fights. There's that swollen pre-storm feeling that crackles between men sometimes. Then the smaller guy drops his eyes and the loud one returns to his call and there's an air of relief and emasculation around the man who complained. In the seat in front of him, two teenagers are taking photos of each other with a phone. The girl says, what's it called, photographic memory? I totally want that. And the boy says, anyone can do it, it's easy. No, it's not, you have to be born with it. No, you can learn it. You need these special lights and there's a book that teaches you how. My sister told me about it. At this, the girl looks cowed and impressed. Then the boy points the phone at her and she smiles again. I'm looking out the window somewhere in the lower 50s or upper 40s watching a man take a photo of his wife on the sidewalk as she pantomimes throwing her umbrella into a trash can. I picture them torturing their nieces and nephews with a computer slideshow of those photos when they get home. Why take a picture like that? Celebrating the end of the rain, the beautiful day? I guess I opted for the bus over the subway for the same reason, because I don't like being underground and because I'm not in a hurry. I haven't been in a hurry since I got to New York. I'm filling my hours wandering around, tutoring kids who are either too dumb for me to ever get them where their anxious parents want them to end up or too smart to need me. I prefer the dumb ones. I can comfort them and some of them have already developed appealing compensations for their dumbness, humor or charm or self-deprecation. They know they're not gonna make their parents happy. The smart ones are sadder, more desperate. They wanna be even smarter than they are. They're already worried about being anything less than perfect. One girl asked me to write a college essay for her. I was confused because she's one of the brightest kids I tutor. I knew whatever she wrote would be good. Not good enough, she said, her perfectly smooth hands twisting together on the dining room table. I'll pay you, I have my own account. How much do you want? 
Sounding slightly manic, she started listing the things she could give me, this purse or that cell phone. She could give me her brand new laptop and tell her parents she lost it. Did I want her coat, her shoes, her dresses? I didn't take her money or her stuff, but not because it would have been wrong. It was because I could tell that this girl didn't have it in her to lie well, to lie blandly, and in that small way, lies need to be told in order to be believed. That she would panic and throw me under the bus when her parents said, is that what really happened? That she was still missing the slightly rotten thing I'd found in myself that keeps you calm and flat when you should be sorry. In Midtown, a guy gets on wearing a check shirt under a long, heavy coat. His thin legs poke out from shorts below the coat, sports socks yanked up above tennis shoes. It's a heartbreaking outfit, a clash of boy and man. He must be so hot. Also, he's sort of good looking, despite the weird clothes. One of those dark honey blonde, sharp nose, the sort of finely veined skin that looks like it would bruise easily. After the door closes behind him, just as the bus begins to pull away from the curb, he reaches into his jacket and takes out a gun leans over the fare box around the plexiglass shield and points it at the driver's head. The gun is big and sort of rectangular, like a cell phone from the 80s. Stop the bus, he says. I only see and hear this because I'm close to the front. I'm already looking at him. He couldn't be more than 30, if that, the same age as me. The driver slams on the brakes. The bus lurches to a halt, and my body goes forward and then back. I bump into the mustache man again, who says, don't worry, don't worry, I'm not made of glass even though I didn't say anything this time. He's behind me and he hasn't yet seen the man with the gun. Pull it right over to the curb, says the man, and put your hands on your head. Don't speak on your radio, please. His voice is lower than you'd expect from his size, his looks, a baritone, a radio voice. Some people behind me are grumbling and saying, what the f because they don't know why the bus has stopped. And all this has so far only taken seconds. The driver puts the bus in gear and it trundles to the right. One wheel goes up on the curb and more passengers yell, what the fuck is this idiot drunk? Jesus Christ. The driver puts his hands on his head and I can see a scrap of his elbow jutting out to one side. Put it back in park, says the man and the driver does so, the elbow dipping out of sight momentarily. I can hear him speaking now. He says, just walk off, just go home. You're okay, man, you're okay. It's nothing really, nothing at all. I'm not really thinking anything right now. In the morning, I'd been walking around in the Met feeling strangely disconnected as if I'd gone deaf. I was still worrying irrationally that what happened to my ear in BC had damaged my hearing, though logically, I knew that my zonk feeling was probably just a hangover. I got the Met tickets from the parents of a boy I'm tutoring who's wonderfully rich and woefully stupid. Technically, you can go to the museum for free, but they ask you to buy a ticket you can choose any price, or none at all. The idea of just ignoring the request and swanning in without pain was too intimidating. The prepaid ticket was easy, anonymous. If I told my friend Annie that, she'd make fun of me. Spineless. I know it. On the bus in this moment, it's too quick. The whole thing seems like something that's happening, but also not happening. I feel like I'm floating. I still have the little metal badge from the Met clipped to the neckline of my dress, a summer dress I'm wearing because it's so oddly warm today. The only tiny working corner of my brain theorizes that this might be some sort of extreme ad campaign or maybe a movie shoot, how, somehow, or something terribly strange but legitimate, allowed. It can't be real. The gunman steps back a little, blinks a few times. He looks at the plexiglass barrier that half shields the driver's seat. Then he shoots the driver in the head. Based in Vancouver, BC, 
Leanne is the artistic director of the Powell Street Festival Society and is the singer-guitarist of The Deep Cove. To Love the Coming End is her first book, and To Love the Coming End of the World is the accompanying album. Um, and you can check out her website, too, at leannedunick.com. Please welcome her up. Thanks. Hello, Toronto. As you heard, I'm from Vancouver, and um, I've been on a little bit of a tour of Ontario and Quebec, and I just came from Montreal, so I'm full of poutine. Um, but it's really cool, because I haven't been here as a writer necessarily before, and just being here tonight, it's really cool to see the writing community of readers and um, writers. Sorry, I'm a bit taller than the rest of you guys. Um, and to read at the legendary pivot with um, the Maroon Bottom Brigade. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get the memo, so I got denim. But um, yeah, it's really awesome to be here. This is my book. It's called To Love the Coming End. Um, I know it doesn't sound like a happy book, and maybe it isn't. It's um, a book of lyric prose that looks like this inside. And it has a few different threads of narratives that go on through it, so it's kind of difficult for me to find a reading where I just like read consecutive pages. So what I do is I try to curate something. So I curated something just for you guys tonight. And um, I should tell you that it takes place in 2011 and it jumps between Japan, British Columbia, and Singapore. And for those of you who may remember, there was a really big earthquake in Japan in March 2011. And that's a big theme of this book. And also there's a theme of the curse of the number 11. So for tonight, I am going to start from the last page, and I'm going to read backwards. Um, the book touches on trauma that is personal, geographical, and collective. And of course, the earthquake is a big part of that. Every 11th month, Sometimes, thoughts of you lead me to vomit. Without you, the landscape has changed, but it is clear that you were, are, a part of it. I tell myself that no love is wasted, that love I'm unable to share directly finds a way to target. It spreads through terrains, typhoons, it's ingested and teared by another loved one. And you wipe that tear with your fingertip, and then my love has found its home. If not this, then there is nothing. I hold on. There's nothing else to do. To be in Japan after the quake, to witness the complex endurance of lives ripped by sharp seismic spasms and aqueous assault, to face those who remain for hope that somehow we will not only survive, but thrive. 3.11, a million tons of debris in transit to opposite shores. Tohoku residents waited quietly, single file, for water and rice. Yukio Mishima believed that Japan's brutality was a result of emotion, 
a sudden explosion to free the Japanese from constant consideration of manner and elegance, that it still existed, concealed, perhaps awaiting its next eruption. Loss is a hard time to catch. I'm going to jump ahead and go all the way to page 40. Fault, when masses of rock have moved past one another. I didn't do the nice like page tagging that Catherine did, so I have to refer to my little note what page to go to next. Okay. <laughs> Subduction, a crustal plate descends beneath another. Volcanoes circle the Pacific. Enamored with its terrestrial beauty and sea, British Columbia forgets it lies on a restless coast, scattered with summits of hardened lava, pumice, volcanic ash. Imagine a seismic rip. Plates warp, lock, pull, instant fractures, after shock. In the horizon, a wave emerges. A white line becomes a mountain. Surge and retreat, thunder and silence, sirens. Rush of the waves return. Grab, toss, suck, slam, sweep. Ghosts swarm a floating world. Remember the days when I became a rhizome, a thing under your surveillance? something to cultivate. I was obsessed with being able to grow, to create an ideal environment for you and I. I tried to give you attention without possession. I felt the lust of science, and soon you became the subject. I studied you, no longer the root. I gave you soil. You said the conditions weren't right. That's reality, you said. Reality was a synonym for misfortune. I should have started the pills then. Within me, a gaping crevice. The more I change my environment, the more I lose track of myself, yet I traverse. Maybe that's the point. Nothing is anchored. Today is unstable, easy for people and land to split. Minerals grind a geological dance. The balance of the Earth's access shifts. Chile, Indonesia, New Zealand, Haiti, Japan. Where next? The unsure crust hectors the Pacific Northwest. Evidence of instability buried under substrate. A story mounds. I don't think I'm the only writer that has um, earthquake anxiety that lives on the Pacific Northwest. Former fears, a catastrophic earthquake, and for us to be apart. Respiration is forgetful. Circulation refuses my hands. Pain in my skull is equatorial. Wake with vessels broken in my ear. 
No cocaine, but heart palpitations. Jaw is fixed. Denude cells like a mountainside. Skin births freckles worth watching. Strands of bitter brown turn to bone filaments. The cinch of a muscle bends me in half. Shoulder is electric. Eardrums resound frequencies. Eyes closed, I see music in black and white when we all know there is no such thing. Ribs restrict the ability to sing. Memories become dreams, and dreams are where I peel dry sections of lip. Sleep leaves imprints of fingers round my neck. Looking behind is a physical impossibility. Why my tail still twitches in your hand. Dentist, do you wear your mouth guard every night? Doctor, these ailments, stress. Chiropractor, torsion, tension, relax. Massage therapist, you need a counselor, not an RMT. Counselor, not stressed, sad. Heart, the work is too much. I think that's all I'm going to read from this book. Um, I love this book, but I have been reading from it a lot lately. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I guess this is a taste of what it's like being a West Coaster, <laughs> the fear of earthquakes, and I really liked getting the taste of what it's um, like from Scarborough and learning the phrase Dollarama. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. <laughs> We're all here for Dollarama right now, right? <laughs> I'm also quite. Well, I'm, I'm surprised that you can buy condoms and pregnancy tests there. I'm, I've seen so many Dollaramas around here, and I'm going to actually go and look just to see it, and then I will believe it. But anyways, um, this book has a companion album, and it's called To Love the Coming End of the World, and it's linked thematically and atmospherically. And if you buy the book, there's actually a download to three of the songs in the back, so you're getting really good bang for your buck. Um, but yeah, I'm going to not read from this anymore, and I'm going to read some new poems to make up for the fact that this book has absolutely no sex in it. I'm going to read <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> Later. This poem's called Hyacinth. Cut stems in glass, perfume brighter than winter light. We don't have to be in the same room to deplete one another. Mass of green and blooms, an inevitable descent. Heads throw their fragrance as they bow to table. Conditioned now to think you smell of ultramarine hues. My lips moisten, your Pavlovian dog, fresh and sucking 
liquid stalks from vessels with time petals curve back towards stem stamen to pistol foundations drip you said you'd do anything i asked imagine the first blow to my face skin feeling blood outside how beautiful the stars fall floor bound so this poem is called plurality and it has three parts i think this is going to be my last one humans fucking 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 humans in imagination in reality we are many things a river that is a gorge protracted glow wings clipped legs crossed lips bit all that we try to contain in constant danger of becoming spectral a colonial urge to mount you i could do it again and again and if i didn't tell you you wouldn't know I offer myself as a handstand, legs wrapped around your neck. Sticky fingers will feed until fed. Lips part and wider, not knowing I'm to hold a mouth too full to swallow. Breathless, my form transgresses dimensions. This ghost parts legs to pass through flesh like menthol. a light prick of cells now different rules of nature apply everything goes in borders are open 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 this is about how to be this is about how to stay here and there you perpetual state of becoming serpent pythonic transfiguration unable to obey zoology with no hands to grasp a poison head tongues my toes in flickering rhythms an upward wave a swell a twist a corkscrew constrictor we slide to satiate jawbones luxate to swallow and then a spell a spasmodic sloth your molt in my mouth and mine in yours Denez is the author of Insert Boy from Yes Yes Books 2014 winner of the Kate Tufts Discovery Award and the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Poetry. And Don't Call Us Dead, out now from Grey Wolf Press. Denez is also the author of two chapbooks, Hands on Your Knees, 2013 from Penmanship Books, and a Black Movie, 2015 from Button Poetry, winner of the Button Poetry Prize. They are the recipient of fellowships from the Poetry Foundation, the McKnight Foundation, 
and a 2017 National Endowment for the Arts Fellow. Dinez's work has been featured widely, including on the New York Times, BuzzFeed, Blavity, PBS NewsHour, and on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. They are a two-time individual world poetry slam finalist. I told you this was fire. <laughs> I wouldn't lie to you. Just wouldn't do it. Three-time Rust Belt Poetry Slam champion and founding member of the Dark Noise Collective. And only today, shortlisted, like I said earlier, for the National <laughs> Book Awards. <laughs> Denez is represented by Beotis Creative. Welcome, Denez Smith, to the stage. Thank you for having me, Canada. I appreciate y'all with your poutine and sexy presidents. Um, is that a president? Prime Minister? Cool. Uh, do y'all like, do y'all, anybody in here like Chance the Rapper? Cool. All right. Uh, so I'll do this poem first. Uh, it borrows a line from him for the title. Uh, it's called, Ooh, You Look Like. Uh, usually heard when trying to receive services from a service industry employee. When you make it to the front of the line and said employee looks upon your face and sees a face not yours and so says, I know you, don't I? To which you say, maybe you went to Central, to which she says, nah. But you know Shawnees, but you don't know any Shawnees particularly well, so you say nah, but then her fingers snap and face lights up the way your mamas do when she has an epiphany and she says, oh! You look like Kenneth, and so calls over Tasha to confirm that you indeed do look like Kenneth, to which Tasha says, hell yeah, dragging out the whole thing to let you know indeed how much you look like the man that you do not know. And this whole moment you hate, not because of this small little ritual of looking like someone, but because the whole time you ask yourself just what the f does Kenneth look like, and so, and so you take to the phone book to find Kenneth, but upon realizing that A, the phone book still exists, and B, it's listed by last name, you take to the internet to look up every black man named Kenneth, Kenny, or Ken in the metropolitan area, but, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I do this one all the time, that's like silly. Okay, uh, so you take to the internet to look up every black man in the metropolitan area named Kenneth, Kenny, or Ken with only minimal breaks to watch a little bit of porn, but upon realizing that Photoshop is really user-friendly nowadays, you decide to find Kenneth. And over the course of three months of sleepless nights of waiting outside the homes and jobs of every black Kenneth in town, and 19 visits to prison for the 19 black Kenneths in prison, and tracking down two black Kenneths who ain't been home in a while, and laying six flowers on six graves with only minimal breaks to watch a little bit more porn and only having one situation, get a tad bit weird when Kenneth 47 caught you looking at more than his face in that restroom you followed him into, you conclude that that Kenneth looks nothing like you. Tasha be lying. Uh, so the book has like two different strains. Uh, one, uh, it's good, they nominated for things. Um, one like deals with uh, thinking about race uh, particularly through a lens of police brutality and like state section violence in the states. Um, and the other one looks at queerness and uh, queerness, sex, um, relationships, and HIV. So this poem is about uh, being 13 and not quite gay yet. All right, uh, so it's called Last Summer of Innocence. There was Noella who knew I was sweet 
but cared enough to bother with me that summer when no one died except boys from other schools, but not us, for which our mothers lifted his holy name and even let us skip some Sundays to be to go to the park or be where we had no business being, talking to girls who had no interest in us, who flocked to their new hips, dumb birds, the dumb birds that we were, nectar high and singing all around them, preening our waves all day, white beater and our best basketball shorts, the flyest shoes our mamas could buy hot, our lineup fresh from someone's porch, someone's uncle cutting heads round the corner, cutting eyes at the mothers of the girls that I pretended to praise. I showed off for girls but stared at my stupid, bony crew. I knew the word for what I was but couldn't think it. I played football and believed its salvation, its antidote. And when Noella and them didn't come out and instead we turned our attention to our wild legs, narrow arms and pigskin, I spent all day in my brother's arms and wanted that to be forever. Boy after boy after boy after boy pulling me down into the dirt. All right. Are y'all familiar with the product known as Vaseline? Cool. Uh, Vaseline is one of my favorite things. I like that you buy it once and that's it. Um, it will last you for the rest of your life. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> if you ever have had to buy a new Vaseline, I am, I am impressed by the extraordinary amounts of Vaseline that you use in your life. Please tell me about it later. Um, so there's like a couple of notes in here that are like a note to like on like some product uh, for like a younger version of myself. Uh, so this is a note on Vaseline, um, which I imagine would maybe it's like to like a 13 year old me when Vaseline was very important to my daily life. Um, I've, I've, I've evolved to lube, you know? I'm grown now, I, I have, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Praise the wet music of frantic palms, plastic toilet, plastic toilet cushion and shiny fingers, your eyes shut, rebuilding how Sherry bent over in math or how the trail walked around after gym class, his underwear too small and brand new manhood undeniable. Praise the endless tub of grease. It's been the same empty but not empty your whole life. This very same Vaseline you're using to polish your favorite body part was used by your mama to slick her face when Miss Latrell over on Hague Street called her a frog-eyed bitch back in 76. Same, same grease your auntie used to make a disco ball of her small brown mouth when she decided it was time to put it on Craig at the skating rink. This same family-sized tub has been young with all your elders, soothe grandpa's gouts, grandma's fire burns, and Saturday morning bruises. Praise petroleum, how oily and blessed the space between your fingers, the supple blade between your thumb and index sends you to the guts of stars. Remember this grip when men use the stuff to prepare you for their want, when they leave you throbbing, tender, and whistling from the wrong mouth, your bones replaced by yolks. You will never have enough spit in this is how men will want you always. Slug, slime, slick of a man, twitching tunnel of left palms. Right. Uh, cool, this is not a room full of old white people. So y'all, uh, sometimes I read for those. Uh, so y'all use dating apps, I'm assuming, right? 
That's like how we meet people nowadays on the on the Tinders and the Grinders and all that kind of stuff. I hate them. Um, and so I wrote a note about it. All right, um, this is a note on the phone app that tells me how far I am from other men's mouths. Headless, horse-hung horsemen gallop to my gate, dressed in pictures stolen off Google. Men of every tribe mark their doors in blood. No fats, no fems, no blacks, no Asians. Sorry, just a preference, smiley face. I'm offered eight mouths, three asses, and four dicks before I'm given a name. I offer my body to the pictures with eyes. The three men who say they weigh more than 250 pounds fill their profiles with pictures of landscapes, sunsets, write lovely sonnets about their lonely and good mouths. The men, the men with abs between their abs write, ask or probably not interested in you. The boy down the street won't stop messaging me. I keep not responding. I thought about blocking him, but I don't want him to think I'm dead. A man says, sup. I say, chilling you. He says, word, we or what. I never found out what or what was. Um, there's this one guy on the app who spells everything like this. It's so true. Why? Why so many? Okay. Uh, why, <laughs> why such bold text? Um, everyone on the app says they hate the app, but no one stops. I sit on the train eyeing men, begging myself to talk to them. I sit on the face of a man I just met. He whispers his name into my lower mouth. I sing a song about being alone. Um, if I said down low, do y'all know what that is? If I said someone was down low, if you don't know, um, that means that that is somebody who is homosexual on a need to know, down to hoe basis. Um, so that's that. Um, so this is about a party full of those guys. So imagine a party full of uh, men who are gay but can't admit it. Or high school. Uh, <laughs> Imagine the football team. All right, cool. Uh, <laughs> all right. At the down low house party, don't expect no n to dance. Here, we drink hen, hold the wall, graze an elbow, and pray it lasts forever. Everybody want to touch a n but don't. We say, what's good? Meaning, I could love you until my jaw is butt memory. We say, yo, meaning, let my body be the falcon's talon and your body be the soft innards of goats, but we mostly say nothing. Just sip some good brown, trying to get drunk with permission and sometime between here and being straight again, some sweet boned glittering boy shows up, starts voguing and sh his sharp hips pierce our desire, make our mouths water and water, and we call him faggot, meaning bravery. Faggot, meaning often I've dreamed of you, flesh damp and confused for mine. Faggot, meaning hail the queen, hail the queen. Faggot, meaning I've waited ages to dance with you. Uh, so I was diagnosed with HIV like three years ago. Um, and like, I think this was two years ago. Uh, one of my favorite porn stars uh, died um, from HIV complications. And uh, they, the like website that I used to watch him on, like just posted a picture, like a new video of him as like the elegy. And I was just like, it's a really weird way to say we miss you. Like we miss you, here's you a, a white boy. Um, so I wrote a poem about that. Um, so this is for uh, Javier Kid Chocolate Bravo. Elegy, elegy with pixels and cum. They won't let you stay dead, kid. Today's update, your dead flesh stitched digital, kid. This gravestone, no lilies, a dick pic, no proof that you were someone's kid. 
Ghosts plunge into a still alive boy, make him scream like a bleeding kid. Did they dress or undress you for burial, kid? Your mother watches you choke a man into pleasure, can't look away, just misses her kid. Men gather around in front of screens to jerk and mourn for you, kid. They don't know your real name, kid. You like an animal, die like an animal, kid. I have the same red shadow running through my veins, kid. In my blood, a little bit of your blood, almost siblings, some bad father's kids. Did you know how many ways you can relate to a ghost, kid? Someone misses your laugh, not just the way you feel asses and screams, kid. I bet they had a pastor who didn't know you do your eulogy, kid. They turn our funerals into lessons, kid. They say blood and everybody flinches, kid. They say blood and they say blood and watch us turn to dust. Kid, they want us quiet, redeemed, or dead already. Kid, they want us hard, tunnel eyed, and bucking. Kid, they want us to f more, they want us to exist. Kid, they want us to they want us to know God or be God. Kid, how close to death was orgasm? Kid, how did it feel to feel everything to become a thing that can't feel? Kid, did a boy kiss what was left of you? Kid, did he flood the church with his mourning? Kid, was he the rain and you the ark? Kid. Did he, did he make a new sea to miss you, kid? Were you a fish swimming in his grief, kid? Did you float? Uh, so this is like later in the book. This is called Strange Dowry. So I'll go into the club and then like finding your boo. All right, cool, here we go. Uh, Strange Dowry. Blood wife, they whisper when I raise my hand for another rum coke. The ill, savior of my, the ill savior of my veins precedes me. My digital honesty about what queer bacteria dotted my blood with snake mist and shatter potions. They stare at my body, off the app, unpixelated in poison pretty flesh. Men leave me be. I dance with the ghost I came here with. A boy with three piercings and muddy eyes smiles and disappears into the strobes. The light spits him out near my ear against my slow and practiced grind. He, I, he could be my honey knight, the hand to break me apart like dry bread. There is a dream where we are horses that neither one of us has. For five songs, my body, years of dust fields, his body rain. In my ear, he offers me his bed promise, livestock, meat, salt, lust, brief marriage. I tell him what I must tell him about the boy and the blood and the magic trick. Me too, he says, his strange dowry, vain brother wife, partner in death juke. What a strange gift to need, the good news that the boy you like is dying too. In the morning, seven emails, meeting, junk, rejection, junk, blood work results. We spend the night and the day and blur it into come wonder and blood hallelujah. I put on a pot of coffee, the, the boy stares from whatever he dreams. And it's like that for a while. Me and that boy lived a good little life for a bit. In the mornings, we both take a pill, then thrash. So I have a poem in the book. It's like long as f so I'm not going to read the whole thing, so I do the part I memorize. Um, that the, the book opens with a long poem that is imagining an afterlife that is exclusive to black men who have been killed by the police. Um, and so I'm going to read a couple of sections from that. It'll sound like one poem, I guess. Um, so imagine that space. This poem is called Summer Somewhere. Possibly, I don't know yet, in the voice of Emmett Till. Somewhere, a sun below Boys brown as rye play the dozens and ball. 
jump in the air and stay there. Boys become new moons, gum dark on all sides, beg bruised blue water to fly, at least tie, at least spit back a father or two. I won't get started. History is what it is. It knows what it did, bad dog, bad blood, bad day to be a boy, color of a July well spent, but here, not heaven, not earth. Boys can't recall their white shirts turned a ruby gown. Here, there is no language for officer or law, no color to call white if snow fell, it fall black. Please, don't call us dead, call us alive someplace better. We say our own names when we pray. We go out for sweets and come back. No need for geography now that we're safe everywhere. Point wherever you please and call it home or church or sweet love. Paradise is a world where everything is a sanctuary and nothing is a gun. Here, if it grows, it knows its place in history. Yesterday, a poplar told me of old forests heavy with fruit that I'd call uncle. Bursting red pulp instead of fire, a harvest of dark wind chimes. And after I fell, it kissed sap into my womb. Do you know what it's like to live someplace that loves you back? There, I drowned back before. Once there, I was the dead fish, the river's prince. There, I knew how to swim but couldn't. There, men stood by shore and watched me blue. There, my mother cried over me, open casket, but I wasn't there. I was here by my own water, singing a song I learned somewhere south of somewhere worse, but that was when direction mattered. Now, everywhere I am is the center of everything. I must be the Lord of something. What was I before? A boy, a warning, a, a son, a myth. I whistled. Now I'm the god of whistling. I built my Olympia downstream, and you're not welcome here. Trust, the trip will kill you. We earned this paradise by a death we didn't deserve. And I'm sure that there are other here's, a somewhere for every kind of somebody a heaven of brown girls braiding on golden stoops. But someone prayed we'd rest in peace. And here we are, in peace, whole, all summer. Uh, I'm going to do one more poem, and then we'll get out of here. Thank you all so much. Uh, let's make a movie called Dinosaurs in the Hood. Jurassic Park meets Friday meets The Pursuit of Happiness. There should be a scene where a little boy is on the bus playing with a toy dinosaur, then looks out the window and sees a T-Rex because there has to be a T-Rex. Duh, motherfucker! It's a dinosaur movie. What the shit did you think was going to happen? Ugh. Don't let Tarantino direct this. In his version, the boy plays with a gun. The metaphor being black boys tore with their own lives, the spitting image of his father, the foreshadow to his end, that. The kid is playing with a plastic triceratops or brontosaurus, and this is his proof of magic or God or Santa. I want a scene where a cop car gets pooped on by a pterodactyl. I want a scene where a corner store turns into a battleground, but please don't let the Wayans brothers in this movie. I don't, <laughs> I don't want any racist shit. 
about Asian people or overused pan-Latino stereotypes. This is a movie about a neighborhood of royal folks, the children of slaves and immigrants and addicts and exiles saving their town from real-ass dinosaurs. I don't want some cheesy yet progressive, sexy Vietnamese hot dude hero with a funny yet strong black girl buddy cop film. This is not a vehicle for Will Smith and Sofia Vergara. I want real-ass grandmas on the front porch taking out, oh, excuse me, taking out raptors with the guns they hid in the walls and under mattresses. I want Cecily Tyson to make a speech, possibly two. I want some of those little spitty, screamy dinosaur things that go I want Viola Davis. I want Viola Davis to save the town in the last scene with a black fist afro pick through the last dinosaur's long scale neck. And this can't be a black movie. No, this movie can't be, can't be dismissed because of its cast or its audience. This movie can't be a metaphor for black people in extinction. This movie can't be about race. This movie can't cause black people pain or be about black pain. This movie can't be about a long history of having a long history which hurt. This movie can't be about race. Nobody can say nick in this movie who can't say it to my face in public. No chicken jokes in this movie. No bullet holes in the heroes and nobody kills the black boy and nobody kills the black boy and nobody kills the black boy for once. Nobody kills that black boy besides. The only reason I want to make this is for the first scene anyway. That little black boy on the bus with his toy dinosaur, his eyes wide and endless, his dreams possible and pulsing and right Right there. Thank you, Toronto. Pivotcast airs on CJRU 12:80 a.m. on Wednesdays and Thursdays from 2 to 3 p.m. and streams on CJRU.ca. For more information on the Pivot Readings, check out pivotreadings.ca.